Today's reading comes from Matthew 5:31 to 32. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. As you're seated, uh, please join me with him. Join with me in prayer. Father, this is, a, this is a difficult text. I want to thank you that you are a God who instructs us, uh, even in things that are hard for us. God, we thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious to sinners like us. Father, and I ask for your help. Would you work by your Holy Spirit. Lord, this text will only bear fruit in our lives if your Spirit is working and applying it to us. So we ask that you would give us sensitive hearts to hear, to repent, to be filled with hope again in your gospel, to rejoice in the grace that Jesus gives to sinners like us. Would you glorify your name through our church? In Jesus' name, amen. My family is broken. My family is a broken family. And what's funny, what's funny about family brokenness is that it's kind of the reverse of the boiled frog experience. Right, the boiled frog enters the cold water and doesn't really notice the temperature slowly increases. I think family brokenness works the opposite way. You enter the water at birth and the temperature may be scalding, and you only slowly come to realize it as you grow older. Slowly coming to an appreciation of the brokenness that, that is your family. For me, when I think about these things, I keep returning in my mind to this one compelling event uh, in my family's life. It was the divorce of my grandparents. It's an event that over time I've come to realize in greater and greater ways has affected my mom my dad, my aunts, and my uncles, my cousins, and me, and so many more. I grew up hearing stories about this divorce. Uh, I, I knew my mom saw a counselor um, as she was just working through the pain and the suffering. Uh, I knew that my parents struggled to work out in their brand new marriage, the bombshell of the end of uh, my mom's parents' old one. And 32 years later, the reverberations of that divorce are still moving through my family. It's a broken family. I know many of you have similar stories or maybe stories of, of far more brokenness than that are in your own broken families. And sin hurts. I know it. I think you know it. Jesus knows it. The reason I bring this up, it's not to cast blame. It's not to share bitter stories about my family. I, I love my family. I'm so grateful to God for putting me in the family that he's placed me in and giving me the family that he has. Now, the reason I bring it up is because this morning we're in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be considering Jesus' own words about marriage and divorce. And as we do, I want you to realize something. Jesus' words aren't abstract. 
These are not just biblical words that are, are far away, removed from us, and distant, and don't bear on our lives. They're words that are concrete and that are specific. And they apply to you and to me and to the root of the sin in our own hearts. They apply to our hurt, to our pain, and to our own family brokenness. In many ways, this passage is difficult. It's, it's shocking. It's convicting. It's really out of step with our culture. But I hope you'll come to see that it's actually a passage that's full of hope. It's a passage that is deeply rooted in hope. And it's full of hope because this is a passage that, that is said by Jesus, spoken by Jesus to lead us to Jesus. It's full of hope because Jesus is the one who speaks these words and promises that he can take hard, sinful hearts and make them soft and fill them with his love. It's full of hope because Jesus, he can heal our marriages. So three points for you this morning as we jump in. Number one, Jesus' teaching. Number two, Jesus' reason. And number three, righteousness that comes from the heart. So point one, look with me at Jesus' teaching. So Matthew 5, 31 to 32, Jesus begins to unpack this third example of greater righteousness in the section that we're in in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching us about a greater righteousness that doesn't just come uh, in an external action on the outside of the human heart, but actually responds and comes from something deep within, comes from a deep obedience and love for God. He's already shown us a couple examples. He's spoken about murder and anger. He's spoken about adultery and lust. And now again, he aims for the heart, but this time his topic is divorce. His topic is divorce because he knew the heart of his culture, the people around him. He knew their hypocrisy. And he starts off in Matthew 5, 31 with these words. Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It was also said, kind of picks up the same phrase. You have heard it said that he said in the previous two examples. And again, Jesus is referring to the Jewish Old Testament scriptures that, that came before his arrival. The scriptures and the revelation of God that he gave to his people, Israel, and his covenant relationship with them. And that Jesus himself has now come to fulfill. And in that Old Testament law that this people was familiar with, and to which Jesus refers to when he says it was also said, in that law, there was a particular passage of scripture in the book of Deuteronomy where God speaks through his prophet Moses. And in that law, divorce is permitted. In that law, divorce is permitted given certain parameters. And this is what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 5, verse 31, when he says, it was also said. He's referring to that, that law. Now, the passage Jesus quotes from is a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and it's verses 1 to 4. Ned, I want to tell you right now, this passage is a difficult one. It's a hard, it's a hard passage. It's ancient. It's written to a culture that's not our own. I think we often have ears that are, have a really hard time even hearing what's, what's said there. But I think if we took the time to unpack it in its context, and I apologize in advance, we can't actually do that today. We don't have time to, to take a deep dive on this passage. But if we did, we'd see that it fits into a section of the Jewish law where God in his mercy is speaking to the leaders of households and teaching them to protect the most vulnerable in society. 
It's actually a law where God in his gracious action is working in the leaders of households to help them understand this is how you actually care for those who are vulnerable. Given the sin of this world, here are steps that you can care for those who are vulnerable. Daniel Block, he's an excellent scholar of the book of Deuteronomy, and he says it well when he writes this. He says, contrary to common opinion, the purpose of this text, that the text of Deuteronomy, is not to authorize or even to regulate divorce per se. The practice is assumed. It's assumed because of the sinful, broken human condition. This passage is for this reason. It's to rein in potential abuse by a husband after he has divorced his wife. It's to rein in potential abuse by a husband after he has divorced his wife. So Jesus knows this. When he says, you have heard it said, he mentions this, this passage. He knows what its purpose was. But Jesus knows something else. He also knows how far his own culture had diverted from God's purpose in that text. See, the issue is this. In Jesus' day, this law wasn't applied to prevent abuse. It was actually used to justify it. Here's what was going on. You see, there was one little if clause that allowed for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. I'll read it to you. Here's just the the if clause. It says this, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, the eyes of the husband, because he has found some indecency in her. And rather than look at the heart of what this law was teaching, in Jesus' day, endless hours were spent debating that if clause and that word in particular, indecency. What does that word indecency mean? I mean, that's the key word, right? If you wanted to have a divorce and to justify it by the law of God, then you had to get that word indecency just right. So the heart of the law wasn't looked to, but the clause was examined and studied. What does this word mean? And in Jesus' day, sadly, the leading school of thought interpreted it to mean whatever was convenient for men looking for a divorce. There's actually a bunch of ancient texts uh, from Jesus' time that, that talk about this passage. And we can look right in and get like a little view into what was happening in Jesus' day and see exactly what was going on as they try to interpret this passage. And when we read those texts, there's, there's a leading school of thought that thought that basically anything went. Indecency applied to most things, including burning your food. If your wife spoils your food, that's okay. You can divorce her because Moses allows for that. Back in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, it's okay, guys. Or even if you find someone a little bit better than your wife and you're more interested in them, you know, that, that refers to this passage as well. And it's okay. You can get off, you can have the divorce and you'll be all right. These are texts from Jesus' day that talk about this. And as a result, the men of Jesus' society, they had a field day with this text. And they used it in a way that was deeply harmful to women in the society. They used it not to live out the heart of the law, but to justify their abuse. It led to all kinds of social damage. Because in Jesus' day, a woman was really dependent on a strong male provider. They needed a protector. They needed a righteous husband. But by inculcating or, or jumping into this sort of a, an exception clause... These men were casting off their wives and basically forcing them into new marriages. They had to seek remarriage 
or they'd be cast adrift in their societies without a protector. The hypocrisy here was rank. It was awful. These men did this. They did it all the while piously claiming to be righteous. After all, they were trying to interpret the text rightly, weren't they? No, 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 no. I'm righteous. You don't understand. I've interpreted the text. I am obeying the law of God. My actions of sin are justified. I'm okay. It's into that context. It's knowing that wrong interpretation of this text. It's knowing that hypocrisy that Jesus says these words. Matthew 5, 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, Jesus looks the pious, righteous person in their eyes. The person who thought they were oh so holy because they dotted I's and crossed T's. And he says to them, unless you've divorced your spouse because they first committed adultery, then, then you're actually an adulterer. You're committing adultery. Or you're the cause of someone else committing adultery. Yet again, I think in this passage, Jesus is revealing his greater righteousness and he's been cutting straight to the heart, not just murder, but anger. Not just adultery, but lust. Not just divorce on the one hand, but the hypocritical heart attitude behind it. So, all right. Okay, that's, that's the passage. I, I think we get that in this context, Jesus is caring for vulnerable people and he's confronting men who are gaming the system to their own advantage. That's what's going on here. We can, I think, go along with that. But then we ask the question, don't we? But what do these words have to do with us? What do these words have to do with us? Do Jesus' words matter for us today? After all, isn't our society completely different than Jesus' society? It's not exactly the same thing. Women aren't dependent on, their, on, on a male provider and protector in the same way. So what's going on here? I mean, besides, in our own society, divorce is common. 42 to 45% of marriages end in divorce in our day and age. And freedom for either party to divorce when and where they want to. I mean, that's all normal for us. So what did Jesus' words matter for us today? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to turn to Matthew 19. Because although Jesus only says two verses worth of words on the subject in Matthew 5, he says much more in Matthew 19. And we're going to have to go there to unpack the meaning of what's going on here, to understand what are his reasons, what is he getting at, what is he driving at. So turn with me then to our second point, Jesus' reason for his teaching. In Matthew 19, I'll set the stage. In Matthew 19, the religious elite, they're called the Pharisees. Um, They're coming to Jesus and they're trying to trap him on a technical matter of the law. So they've come to Jesus. They say, all right, we want to, we want to catch Jesus up. We want to enter into a dialogue with him and kind of expose how he doesn't think rightly about the law and expose him uh, in his error. And they've heard about Jesus teaching back in Matthew 5. They've heard about it. They know what he says. And in 19 verse 3, they asked this. Is it lawful, Jesus? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that any cause is again referring to their own interpretation of indecency. And they know that Jesus' answer is no, I think. Well, we haven't heard why yet. And they, they, uh, we haven't heard why, neither have they. So Jesus tells them. 
But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. And he doesn't go just back to the book of Deuteronomy to debate a matter of the law and God's words to Moses. Jesus goes far deeper than that. Jesus speaks of God's creation and intention for marriage. Look at Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6 with me. Jesus says to these Pharisees, trying to trip him up in this legal discussion debate, he says, have you not read? And by the way, that's a really great thing to say to a self-righteous religious teacher. You know, someone who loves the Bible. Haven't you read? Don't you know this passage of scripture? That he who created them from the beginning made the male and female. He's referring back to creation, to God's purpose and his intention in creating male and female. He says, haven't you read the passage in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? The second chapter of the Bible. Don't you guys know that passage when God says this? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's going on here is this. Jesus' culture was more concerned with piously observing a rule in Deuteronomy that got them off the hook for their marriages than they were with living from the heart, the righteousness of God revealed at creation for marriage. They loved the pious, legalistic interpretation, but they didn't love the heart of God's righteousness. And Jesus, for these people, he points back to marriage at creation. He says, this is something that's good for us. It's God's intention and his purpose for us as human beings. But I think we might ask today, right? We, we see that. We can see that the Bible claims that. But we have a question when it comes to a text like this, I think. We wonder, in our culture, in our own day, when marriage seems so up for grabs and open to every interpretation under the sun, we wonder, is marriage good for us? Is it still good for us? Is divorce bad for us? What's going on, Jesus? Like, do your words uh, matter at all for us today? Because the Bible claims that God's purpose for marriage are for our good and for our flourishing. But, but we don't, I think, exactly just immediately conclude that, do we? We need to realize that the Bible claims that, and the Bible's right, but that it's actually a claim that's supported largely in our culture. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I'll just share this with you today. Because even today, the Encyclopedia for Early Childhood Development, which the government of Canada calls a comprehensive, reliable, and easy-to-use evidence-based reference tool. So you got the government of Canada's approval for what I'm going to quote for you. Even today, this encyclopedia says this, parental separation or divorce is associated with increased risk for numerous psychological, academic, and social problems throughout the life course. Ongoing conflicts between the co-parents after the separation. Problems with poor parenting. Financial difficulties resulting from separation. And loss of contact with a non-residential parent help explain the association between parental divorce and offspring functioning. Even the day our society realizes that when we depart from God's creational purposes for marriage... You harm the kids. When marriage is damaged, the kids are are damaged. It harms them. When you harm the kids, you harm the society. Society has more brokenness in it. And there's more than that because let's not be naive. Divorce is horrific and harmful and traumatic for the people that are divorced. It's a brutal thing to go through. It's a hard thing to go through. It's a painful thing to go through. 
So when Jesus restricts divorce here, what he's doing is he's driving the people of his society back to this deeper righteousness that accords not just with dotting I's and crossing T's on particular matters of interpretation and divorce, but back to the original creation intent for marriage. So here's the big idea. The big idea of that creational intent for marriage. It's this. Marriage, brothers and sisters, Christ said you need to hear this. Marriage is a gift. It's a gift. It's a precious gift given by God for our enjoyment and for our good. He created it and he gave it to us. And in marriage, God takes the two and he makes them one. And God's desire for our marriage is that, is that we stay richly and intimately connected in love and self-giving, in a relationship with God that exists in love, that we'd be faithful to one another for all of our lives. Lifelong commitment. That's God's intention for marriage. Jesus knows this, and that's why in 19 verse 6, after confronting the Pharisees, or the Pharisees confronting him, that's why he ends his statement with this. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Righteousness that is deep and true, it loves and it obeys and delights, not in the laws that let you out of marriage, but in God's good purposes for it. Jesus is just exposing hypocrisy here, a deep hypocrisy in the lives of this people. On the outside, these men claimed to love God's law, but they didn't. They love themselves. They love themselves. They try to justify their self-love from the Bible. The thing is, Jesus knows where that sin and hypocrisy comes from. He knows its source. Look at how the story continues in Matthew 19, verses 8 to 9, in our third point, righteousness from the heart. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The reason Moses allowed for divorce was this this hardness of heart. The word that Jesus uses is sclerocardia in Greek. It's a really interesting word. Sclero comes as the root of the same word that we get our medical term sclerosis from just a hardening of the tissue. And cardia, of course, is that root where we get our word uh, for heart from, like, like cardiac arrest or something like that. That's the word for heart. He's literally talking about the hard hearts of the people. Your hearts are so hardened by sin, Jesus says, that God allowed divorce. It's because of sin. God knew sin would happen. He knew men and women would cheat on one another and sin against one another And even before Jesus came to deal with hard human hearts, God was at work to stop the bleeding of sin and to try to work to mitigate its brokenness by allowing for a legal means of divorce. The thing is, though, Jesus isn't primarily concerned with stopping the bleeding. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. He's concerned with real, deep, true righteousness that embraces from the heart God's purposes for marriage. And he says in Matthew five thirty two, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what do we do with this text? What do we do with this passage? It's a hard one. 
I confess to you, this week has been hard for me. To prepare this sermon has been hard. This, this is a hard text, a hard passage, and it's a hard application. What do we do with it? As difficult as it is to hear Jesus' words, I think we do need to hear them with gratitude and with hope, with thanksgiving, for two reasons. Let me share them with you. Number one, we need to hear them because the grace of God is so good to us. Our God comes to us in a world that is full of confusion about what God's intentions are for us as humankind. And he speaks a word of instruction. He helps us to see what true marriage and flourishing in marriage looks like. He points us back to his original creational design. He points us back to righteousness and living under the rule of God and the blessing that goes with it. It's a grace to us that he gives us his word in the first place to teach us this. There's a second reason when we need to hear these words with gratitude, and it's this. It's because Jesus hasn't come to condemn you. I think you need to hear that. Wherever you are, whatever your situation right now in this room, whatever your history, Jesus has not come with these words to condemn you. It says in Isaiah about Jesus that a bruised reed he won't break. He's a tender-hearted and merciful Savior. He's not coming to condemn you. He's coming to offer you his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and to beckon you towards himself because in you, he can work to fulfill the righteousness that he's after. When still, though, I think these words are hard because as we look at this high standard for marriage, we all look pretty badly against it, don't we? We all measure badly. Even, uh, obviously, those of you, I think, who, who've worked through something as painful as divorce in your life, I'm sure you feel this as you look at this passage. But even for those of you who haven't been divorced, I think that, I think that we who haven't been divorced, we come to this passage and we can feel self-righteous about it. But we need to be disabused of our self-righteousness real quick. So let me ask you a question. Just think about this. In your own marriage, how have you been doing loving your spouse faithfully? In your own marriage, how have you been doing living in unity and in loyalty and in oneness? Even if you haven't been divorced, what's happening in your heart in your marriage? I think we need to remember the earlier words that Jesus has spoken here. Jesus Jesus equates hatred with murder. So what's going on in in your own hearts towards your spouse in frustrations and bitternesses and hatreds? Jesus equates, just earlier to this passage, he equates lust with adultery. So how's it going in your marriage staying faithful to your spouse with your eyes, with the desires of your heart? I'll be honest, in my life, outwardly my marriage looks good. Right? In my life, I, I haven't cheated on Heather. I, I haven't been divorced. But what's going on in my heart shows that I too fall far, far, far short from this passage of Scripture. My heart in regards to lust, in regards to anger, is awful. I'm a sinner. God's working on me. He's not finished, but I'm a sinful person dependent on his grace. Even to be specific, <laughs> to be specific with you and concrete, um, last Monday, man, I was grumpy. I was, it was an okay morning. And then the afternoon, something changed. I started talking to Heather and something she said set me off. And it's not, it was not her fault. It was my sinful heart. And my thoughts towards her were awful in my anger and in my sin. And I fall short of this. And I know you, I think you're just like me. 
I think it turns out that, that you and I, that we don't love God's intention for marriage either. We don't guard it. We don't love it. We don't love him. We don't fight to honor marriage. We don't fight to honor the glory of God in our marriage. We don't fight to, to love one another with all of our hearts and love God with all of our hearts. We don't do that. We fall far short. Like the people Jesus confronts with his teaching, I, I suffer from sclerocardia and so do you. We all suffer with hard-heartedness. But here's the good news. Jesus can change our hearts. He can change our hearts and he can fill in us his greater righteousness. So behind this teaching on the divorce, we need to see that there is a word of hope, the only real word of hope that sinners like you and I need. You know what the word is? It's Jesus. It's the name of the person who speaks these things to us. I want to spend the rest of our time looking at three ways that the good news about Jesus Christ can fulfill all righteousness and make every difference for us and in our marriages. I want to just spend the rest of our time there. And if you're a single person and you're like, man, I I don't know why I came this morning. You know, this is all about marriage. I should have just stayed home. Uh, I want you to to listen to these words too and to be instructed by them. I think to to be encouraged uh, to, to listen. How can I help my married friends on the one hand, for sure, to speak truth to them? But also, I think in terms of just applying the gospel to relationships and to your own heart as well, I think you'll be served by this. So think about ways that it might uh, apply to you as well. Three reasons, three reasons that Jesus makes all the difference in our marriages. First, listen to this. If your heart is hard towards your spouse right now, if you're living in a weight of unforgiveness towards your spouse, if you are feeling that hardness and that distance growing and, and you're so far down the road, like, I don't even want to try anymore in my marriage. I don't even want to try anymore. If your heart is hard, hear this promise. Ezekiel eleven nineteen to 20. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Brother and sister, Jesus came into this world. He entered in to die, to invite you to come and to die with him. So your heart would be, would be crushed and dead with him and his death so that you could be raised to new life with him. He came to affect in your life and in your heart newness, softness, Rivers of living water that flow from within you in love and adoration towards God and that can soften your heart towards your spouse. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus can make your heart soft. He can make your heart soft. The second thing is this. Jesus makes all the difference in our marriages because Jesus can empower you to forgive. Jesus can empower you to forgive. And I realized this morning that, that your marriages are full of deep, maybe even unspeakable wounds. And for some of you, maybe it's, it's not deep wounds, maybe it's just a, a slow accumulation of the paper cuts. You know, little wound after little wound after little wound after little wound until your heart in love is just stopped and cut off from loving your spouse. And your spouse's heart is stopped and plugged up and kept from loving you. But hear Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 to 32. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Notice how opposite it is to hard-hearted. 
It's the opposite of hard-heartedness. Be tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. This is key. As God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32 calls us to be kind and tender-hearted and to forgive as God in Christ forgives. Notice that. In, in this verse, the reason that Paul calls us towards tender-heartedness and forgiveness is only there because Jesus has forgiven us. It's only there because Jesus offers forgiveness to those who've sinned against him. His forgiveness and its power comes first, and it can empower you too to forgive. He alone makes deep and true forgiveness possible. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing like the forgiveness of Jesus. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Blessed is the one who God forgives. Jesus' forgiveness is unparalleled. Nothing you've forgiven others of comes close to what Jesus offers to forgive you of. Nothing comes close. No cost that you've suffered in forgiving someone comes close to the cost that Jesus has suffered and endured in bringing us forgiveness. It doesn't come close. In order to forgive us and love us, Jesus, Jesus who is fully man and fully God, the omnipotent God of the universe living eternally in Trinitarian fellowship of love and joy and peace and happiness. He came to earth. He entered into suffering and pain and death in order to die to bring you life, to bring you forgiveness, to show you his love. He made himself vulnerable to you and he was killed for it. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 say this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Hear the good news about Jesus this morning. He came to earth not just to teach us about his righteousness. He came to earth to go where you and I never could. He came to earth to stand under the full, just weight of a holy God against human sin. He came to take the blow of his own justice as God upon himself. To die so that you could be forgiven. To be forgiven, not grudgingly, but freely. Not of something small, but of a vast, innumerable debt that you could never possibly repay. And he came to die so that you could be freed from the grip of a cold and unforgiving heart. He came to die so that you could be freed to learn to love and to forgive to extend the forgiveness that you've received from him and the love that you have from him to others empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. You see, Jesus' gospel is real. It's real and it's powerful and it's practical. It's not abstract. This is something practical. Think of how practical this is when applied to marriage. Look again at Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The power of Jesus working his forgiveness in a marriage is practical and incredible. I've tasted this. I, I depend on this forgiveness in my marriage. When I was first married, in the early years, I confessed a lustful adultery to my wife. I confessed that I'd been using pornography. I confessed to her my sin. I came before her, and she heard my confession. And I remember, I was talking to her about it last night, I remember just like exactly where she was sitting and what that moment was like. As she, she cried, as she was angry, as I could see the hurt written across her face. You know what she said to me? Man, I'm so thankful for this. She looked at me, and through her tears, she said this. She said, Brent, I am angry. And I'm hurt. But I know how Jesus has forgiven me. How could I not possibly forgive you? I think those are probably the sweetest, most Jesus-saturated words that I've heard coming from my wife and applied to my own heart. You know where they came from? They came from a, a wife who knew Jesus' love, who knew Jesus' forgiveness. It came by the grace of the Holy Spirit working through her to forgive me. I am so thankful. You know, my marriage and every marriage depends on this forgiveness from Jesus. It depends on it. Because here's the deal. You're going to hurt the person you're married to if you haven't already. You are going to wound them deeply. And they are going to wound you deeply in ways that you probably right now can't imagine. And what are you going to do when that day comes? Is your heart going to be hard and rigid? Or is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to saturate you in its love and its forgiveness and flow through you and empower you to forgive and to love as you have been forgiven and loved? We need the gospel to invade our marriages, to cause us to forgive, to be free to forgive. You know, I know some of you have been sinned against horrifically, far more than anything I've talked about so far. But the good news about Jesus is that God can empower you to forgive in the situation that you're in too. It's that good. It's that big. Once you seek Jesus, once you come to him and cry out to him to, to work this gospel into your soul, that you'd behold Jesus and be empowered by him and by his spirit to forgive as you've been forgiven. There's a third way, though, that, that Jesus can redeem and work in our marriages and fulfill in us his righteousness. It's this, Jesus, through his gospel, he can redeem what's broken. He can redeem what's broken. He can change it. Several years ago, just before my grandmother stopped, uh, started losing her memory pretty significantly, uh, I had a conversation with her. I sat down with her. It was, it was a sunny afternoon at my parents' place. It was a family event, and she was kind of sitting off by herself. And I went and sought her out and sat down with her. And I, I've, by God's grace, uh, we have a pretty close relationship. Uh, there's many years of, of piano lessons that went poorly when I was young. Uh, that, that, you know, if it, the piano didn't go great, the, uh, the time with Grandma went well. And I got to know her. We had a, a good relationship. 
And gently, at what seemed like the right time in the conversation, I asked her something I've been wanting to ask her for so long. I said, I said, Grandma, I said, most of your grandkids, they're walking with Jesus. She's got a big family. We're part of a big family. Most of them are walking with Jesus. I said, and Grandma, most of your, most of your kids and your in-laws are walking with Jesus. Like, what do you attribute that to? She looked at me and she said, you know, Brent, I can't attribute to I can't attribute it to anything but the grace of God in my life. She says, she says with, with tears in her eyes, she looks at me and says, I did everything wrong. Everything. You know, I know my grandma, I know her I know her backstory. That's why I asked her the question. And I looked at her and I saw through her tear stained face. That she loved Jesus. That she knew his grace. That she knew intimately her sin and her failures and her struggles and her excesses. She knew the hurt she caused. She knew the hurt and the pain that she received. But through it all, she she knew Jesus. She'd come to trust in Jesus for his forgiveness and for his grace. She loved him. She depended upon him. And she looked at me and she said, it's all Jesus. Everything that's happened in my family is Jesus. It's not me. I know my sin. I know my brokenness. You know, to be sure, I see the brokenness of my family today. Stemming from the sin of my grandmother and the sin of my grandfather. In more ways than I ever did when I was young. And just, I just watched how it's affected my whole family. But against the backdrop of that pain and that suffering and that brokenness, I see something else too. I see the grace of God writing his story of glory and goodness and love against the backdrop of human sin. You know what's awesome? The reason that's there in my family is because Jesus is our Savior, but he's not just our Savior. He's not just my Savior or my grandma's Savior. He can be your Savior too. He's a God who loves to redeem The good news about Jesus is that no matter who you are, what you've done, whether you've been divorced legitimately or not, or how broken your marriage is or your family is, the good news is that Jesus can meet you right here, right now, and he can redeem. And he can make whole. And he can make new. And he can begin to write a story of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness against the backdrop of sin and death. That's the Jesus that we serve. As we conclude, I want you to think about this. There's a way we can approach Jesus' words in divorce here in Matthew 5, and I think that we can be very much like the people he's trying to correct. Then we can approach these words, and we can, we can look for ways to, to dot I's and cross T's and get our theology about divorce exactly right. We come to the passage precisely and primarily for that reason. And yes, there are reasons for divorce to legitimately happen today. But you need to realize that the heart of what Jesus is saying here isn't to focus on reasons for divorce. That's not the heart of what he's saying. The heart of what he's saying is to highlight the bankruptcy of our sin and to provoke us to come to him for forgiveness and for restoration that only he can bring to us. That's the heart of the passage. He's inviting us not to embrace a clause that allows for divorce. He's inviting us to come to him for redemption and forgiveness and for mercy and grace. To be empowered in your marriage where you're at. To have hope that you serve Jesus who's bigger than any of the sin that's in your marriage. 
That he can empower you to have a rich love and grace. Not, not because of sin, but in spite of sin. And because of his grace. However hard your heart, or dead your marriage, or hypocritical your righteousness, Jesus can make you new. Christ said, won't you come to him and receive that? Won't you receive that? Stop trusting in yourself. And stop trying to fix what's broken on your own. You can't do it. I promise you, you'll fail. But there's somebody who can. Come to Jesus. Come to him to have your heart made new and filled with his love. Come to him to be forgiven and to learn to forgive others as you've been forgiven. Come to him to have him restore what's broken and maimed and horrifically marred by sin. Come to him and hear the words of John 7, 37 to 38. When Jesus says this, Christ said, hear these words. If anyone thirsts, oh, we are thirsty. In our sin, we are so thirsty. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the gospel promise for you in Christ Jesus this morning. Will you pray with me?